Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Gary. Hey, Guy, how are you? I'm very well. Excited about this one. Yeah, once more, we've got someone from a band that we've spoken to in the past. We had Kurt on uh, from Tears for Fears and after having Roland. And we've had Mike from Genesis and now and now it's Steve Hackett but Steve is much more those early years isn't he well and he's also a musician of incredible integrity he jumped ship to follow his muse you know he's been absolutely true to himself rather than going after the pile in the countryside exactly. as it were although he's, I'm sure yeah. he's probably got one of those I mean, his solo work has done so well it's and so much of it has entered the you know top 30 he's done every genre and what's nice we, we can talk, is that he's now sort of engaged in a very similar endeavour to us yeah, that's right. He's going back to the old stuff and revisiting it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I still think of him as, as the keeper of the flame of my favourite period of Genesis, which yes. is with Peter no, Gabriel. Well, it's my... I mean, Trick of the Tail is one of the first albums I ever bought. Yeah, let's not forget. That's right. It's not just Peter's no. Genesis, is it? He goes yeah. into... He does those two albums with Phil as the lead singer. So much to talk about. Let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. I know you're musicians, but you've been more professional than a lot of journalists. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Oh! Yes! Hey! <laughs> Hi there. How are we doing? Oh, oh happy to have you. Thank you so Trilled much. I'm delighted. Yeah, we've been really, really looking forward to this. Okay, good. Good. How are things with you, Steve? You're putting off tours and you're just about to go on one, aren't you? Just about to go to Europe. Well, we managed to do a whole British tour. We did 31 dates. We did three nights at the Palladium and no passes. And then we did some, well, we did some Scandinavian stuff. We did five Scandinavian countries and a couple in France. We did Monaco. We did Paris. And it was amazing. Unlike most bands, it seemed to be charmed. At any moment, we thought the rug could get pulled, as it has been from so many others yeah. who pals who tried to tour and found that it wasn't easy. But, you know, I have friends that have managed to do it. On paper, we're ready to go from March onwards. Meanwhile, I'm recording, doing a live album. I start work on that, something that was recorded on the British tour from Manchester. And I'm I'm writing and, and recording as ever, working with pals, various things. You never stop, Steve. It is a, it's being on a deep dive the last week. So you've done, there's so much to explore with you. It's, it is incredible. It's an interesting time because eventually I think all the dots connect up. You know, I started out doing rock stuff 50 years ago. That turned into the occasional either classical album or, or classically inspired so I had this two-pronged thing where one audience was completely unaware of the other audience. Once I got stuff on Classic FM, and I'd done a Midsummer Night's Dream, and I had mm. people writing to me who were from a completely different world who wouldn't be interested in, in rock whatsoever. So it appealed to the more romantic, perhaps, female listeners. So that was very different from rock. That was at a time when, for one reason or another, I was between bands and it was more difficult to tour. So, it was, you know, it was it was very fractured. Then it was possible to tour pretty much flat out. And so I've, I've kept that up until, you know, over a decade of, of doing that, a decade and a half of that, 
suddenly COVID hit and everyone was at yeah. home. I thought I'll get busy in another way. Did lots of lockdown videos and, and track chats for people. I mean, the thing is, Steve, is it seems to me you don't stop working. I mean, you've, no. you've made so many solo albums since leaving Genesis, obviously, uh, over the decades. And in different styles, as Guy was alluding to, yeah. um, you're constantly on the road. I just want to get a snapshot of how you spend your time and your days. Right. Because, because you're making me feel really lazy here. I mean, do you have a routine that you, and, and always an ambition that's around the corner? I think it's opportunity as well. Luckily, I'm married to a very lovely lady, Jo, who is very dedicated and devoted, and we kind of run the thing between us and we work together. It's very much a partnership. That's wonderful as far as I'm concerned. It makes so many more things possible when you're not being sabotaged at home. It's completely <laughs> opposite. So, you know, mention their names. John Lennon didn't function for years, you know. You know what I mean? Mm-mm. Do you visit the studio most days or do you, do you have a sort of nine to five, I pick up my guitar, I must write? I don't actually have any hard and fast rule and say to myself, oh, I haven't done that two hours practice today. I'm not like that. Because I like to think that I'm constantly inspired by one thing or another, I'm either trying to write a song like I am today, trying to write a romantic song, so I'm sitting down with an acoustic guitar doing that. But when I dry up with that, I'll pick up an electric guitar and find that the combination of all the toys and the pedals just gets an amazing sound. And and so I just have a burn-up on that and think, well, I'll get some licks from that that I may be able to use in future and um so i think it's about attitude of mind really i am aware of the ticking of the clock and and obviously you know one gets older and i'm aware that with the loss of several very precious friends immensely talented people that i've had to say goodbye to in the past decade or so all of it's a privilege it's great it all works at the moment some are struggling on Others, you know, it's as if, you know, they get better and better. Certain people, there are classical musicians mm-hmm. who may no longer look like a spring chicken, but they have still amazing abilities as musicians. So I think, you know, the idea that you can fall back on that, you know, once once your teeth, yeah. your hair, your hearing has gone, you know, perhaps you can just rely on muscle memory or something like that. But that's, you know, isn't that the story for all of us? And, uh, and I just love doing it at the end of the day. So I don't think of it as work. I think of it as opportunity. One thing about you, Stevie, is that you, because you have certainly been absolutely true to your muse, should we say, the kind of the leaving of Genesis showed that. Yeah. That must be a brilliant thing to drive you. You know, it's always just going to be the music rather than whatever opportunities that affords. Yes, I'd agree with you there, yeah. Genesis was a great opportunity for me to work with other guys who who felt similarly about music. And uh, I think we learned a lot from each other. Uh, mm-hmm. We kind of grew up together, even though we were officially adults when we were working together. Childhood extends way beyond its sell-by date, and um, musicians can be extraordinarily inspired, and at the same time, they can be extraordinarily competitive. And so, you know, certain things wouldn't really be worthy of, uh, you know, the great people that you're working with. But I found that Genesis, if I'm being completely honest, was thrilling for me in so many ways. And, and I was a fan of what each of the guys brought to it. Whether they all felt the same about each other, I don't know. I think, you know, there was the competitive side of it. And I think that that's why the band was in abeyance, an abandoned place. But, you know, I still contribute to it in my way, which is to celebrate the work that we did together when I think we were at our most creatively vital. No matter how much work we continue to do, all of us have this moment where we meet other people and and the sum of the parts becomes greater than any of the individuals concerned. And everyone seemed to be at that point with, with Genesis during that uh, those the 70s you know, at the top of their game as such young men. Yeah, it's funny that, isn't it? You know, I've got this thing where, you know, towards the end of next year, I'll be doing Foxtrot um, to celebrate hey! his 50th. And at the time when we did the album, um, I thought the game's up, you know, people aren't going to like this. It's too much for them. And I was so wrong. And I'm so pleased that with hindsight, I look at that album and everything we went for, I think pretty much comes off on it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, there's so much strong stuff on it. So I, I'm very proud of it and, and happy to do that. And um, What's funny, yeah, because Gary and I are involved in a very similar enterprise. I don't know if you know, we're in this band with Nick Mason doing the early Floyd stuff. And, and again, and it is a fantastic thing where because it's done in such a way that if not new, it becomes fresh and it kind of has a, a new life rather than it's different to a tribute band playing again. You know? Yeah, but this is the new classical music as well. This is like, yeah. you know, people are going to be doing Beethoven's Ninth forever. They'll be doing Foxtrot. <laughs> well, yeah. this is it. You know, at the end of the day, unless those who, who did it in the first place, but I suspect Floyd are, tend to celebrate their past um, whereas only up to a point sometimes there's a sort of aspect of denial and yeah. oh yeah we did that when we were students with beards and all that you know it's great that you know the whole of Floyd's history gets celebrated so it's up to you know you no longer need the sanction of everybody to say you know yes I was part of this I put this together with everyone else I'm going to take it out and I'm going to do it it'll be my vision with like-minded people who will celebrate it and not denigrate it that's so important. And that's the way the music survives. Yeah. I don't think this is nostalgia on my part, even though, you know, these were such important albums to me mm-hmm. growing up as a kid. And you're playing in particular, along with, with some other guitar players that were in my universe at that time, really affected me. I mean, I was really drawn to the folk quality of what you were doing, plus the melodic stuff, which, you know, I think I'm guessing took some influence or inspiration from Robert Fripp. I can hear Robert very much in your playing, you know, the the elongated sustained sound. But also at times, you know, I mean, on a track like After the Ordeal, where you play the beautiful, when you go onto the electric, there's bits of Mick Ronson in there, elements of glam rock even. I think that musicians become each other, they are each other, and we all influence each other whenever I've gotten together with other guitarists of a certain stature, I've been amazed at the things they reveal. I mean, for instance, some years ago, I was working with Brian May, and he said, oh, you know, the stuff you did on Musical Box influenced me. And I thought, oh, hang on a moment here. This is from an album that didn't exactly set the world alight at the time, but that track, Musical Box, I see what he means, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. there were about three different guitar solos on it, you know, one of which was virtually acoustic, sped up. The other one was rockier, Then at the end you get the harmonies. I thought to myself, well, Christ, I think he's been more of an influence on me than I've been <laughs> on him. It's kind of nice. It's lovely, you know. It, yeah. You'd yeah. be surprised people that I hold in great esteem have been, you know, prepared to admit you know, that there's been some influence. So we are each other, we become each other, we influence each other. Yeah, but there's a point on that I wanted to make, which what I find interesting is I remember when I was into your stuff early on, that you were very much this great virtuoso musician, not so much the guitar hero in the traditional Mm. sense that, you know, as the Jimmy Pages and the Townsends or whatever. But what's interesting is that you became the absolute godfather, the touchstone for the 80s guitar hero. You know, all that stuff, you know, sweet picking and tapping and everything, all the Eddie Van Halens and Yngwie Malmsteens yeah. and all these incredibly ostentatious guitar players, which is the last yes. thing you were. <laughs> yeah, I tended to come up with a technique and then move on. That was it. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, you know, it's like who's who's writing the dictionary and who who's out there reciting the word. I always thought, yeah, the brief was to try and sketch in a number of styles and then head off into the sunset yeah. with something else. <laughs> so I suspect... In more recent years, I've become more literal and fallen back on certain things. Well, okay, well, tapping, okay, well, so if I was doing that in 71, why shouldn't I use that now? So mm-hmm. on the last thing that I did, it featured much more sort of technically driven stuff. And uh, I figured I was allowed to do that. But yeah. if, if there's a God in music, I think that melody has to be part of yeah. romancing that particular stone. So. But that's exactly what I was saying earlier when I was talking about After the Ordeal. It's a beautiful melody. And let's not forget, you know, Firth of Fifth, which has which is mm-hmm. so melodic, you know. And I mentioned Robert Fripp because I, I think, you know, mm. he understands that use of yearning that goes yeah. into, his, into his music. Talking about influences, just a minute ago, I, you know, I was listening... Mm. I've been listening to Musical Box, which I'm, you know, never need an excuse to listen to those old Genesis tracks anyway. But it did occur to me that the Touch Me Now stuff 
that Peter's yeah. doing at the end, Touch Me Now, which is a great moment live, you yeah. know, the audience becoming part of that, was taken by Bowie on Rock and Roll Suicide and Give Me Your Hands, which he says at the end, Give Me Your Hands. Well, again, there may be some influence. I wouldn't know, you know. No, I mean, no, no, it's just, you know. I, 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 it's something that seemed obvious to you. But we also, that's just something that we'll all do. We'll all try to link the things that we like to the other things mm. that we like. Mm. <laughs> but I understand that moment, that was always the moment no, that's that, right. that took off, so... You felt you were on the home straight once it was touched me. And now, you see, you've got this sort of childhood suddenly becomes adolescence becomes, and it all depends on your interpretation of, of an extremely symbolic lyric in the first place. So um, yeah, it's that yearning. We need to go back to your younger days. What inspired you as a young man? I mean, your brother was a big part of your life musically and still is, yes. you know, as a flautist. Yeah. Tell us about growing up and how music... Uh, affected you just one because you are that quite rare thing steve like garen myself in that you're what i would call a proper londoner <laughs> you grew, grew up, up in pimlico, pimlico. yeah <laughs> i grew up in pimlico in the shadow of battersea power station so in the shadow of what would become pink floyds and we're back there <laughs> most iconic album yeah. cover of course flying pigs were excluded or had yet to be at that time but i grew up in the housing estate, which was literally on the other side of the water. Church oh, the heating came from the runoff water from Bassey yes, Power Station, right. didn't it? Yeah. I had friends who grew up there. Yeah. Um, 1953, we moved in there, and I was three years old. And my mother said, oh, my goodness, you know, we can have baths all day. And, and the, <laughs> there's heating coming up through the floor, central heating. I mean, It's like The Simpsons. It, it's like The Simpsons. But, you know, the place they'd been in before that looked like 10 Rillington Place. You know, it was depressing. <laughs> and so this was a big up, you know, part of that whole sort of British optimism, Festival of Britain, creation of the South Bank, Battersea Park, permanent funfair, all the wonders of things that were on the other side of the water. But, you know, that was the industrialised side of the water too. So the residential side was more where we were, you know, these flats. And um, we were in one of the first blocks that were built. And there was Sullivan House and there was Gilbert House. It was a musical link. What did your dad do? That's brilliant. My dad, he was a very, a very young father. He was brilliant at, at 20 things that make him sound like Superman. He was a paratrooper. He was drafted in. Just at the end of the war, he was in Palestine, part of the peacekeeping force there. But he was great at football, cricket, huge IQ, could balance things on his nose, walk on his hands. I mean, build you a table, paint you a picture. And he, he became a professional artist years and years after he'd worked in offices. And um, as I say, he, he could do 20 things. But one thing he passed on to me was a love of music because he... He could play several instruments and mouth organ was the thing. From the age of two, I was deadly serious about trying to do the things that he could do. Yeah, he could play a bit of clarinet, a bit of bugle. He was an incredibly talented, very sweet man. And I, I mourn his passing every single day because when you grow up, you just think, well, that, that's my dad. Aren't all dads like that? Like, no, not all dads like that. You know, this was mm -hmm. Superman mm -hmm. and he was my father. But how did classical music come into your life? Because classical music seems to me to be the biggest inspiration on you and your brother. Well, there's a strange thing, but there's a little bit of strange uh, family lineage where most people have passed, and so I won't get into trouble saying that, but it seems like we may have been part of a bastard line of someone who was very talented and was a sculptor, and I won't mention the name. But mm. oh. both my brother and I started listening to classical music. None of this was around, around the house. And uh, my brother jokes about this and said, yeah, I always knew we were tough, you know, from this very famous guy who should remain nameless and being enigmatic here. But it seems as if there's a connection. My grandfather looked very much like him. There are various clues that in the DNA and what have We're you. clearly going to go and hunt this down afterwards. It's weird. Yeah, it's weird. And so for some reason, we started getting interested in classical music. I started buying harpsichord albums and... Um, at the same time, I was listening to rock as rock was starting to become as pop, in fact. First thing was The Shadows, Hank Marvin. Many years later, I met Hank and I said, yours was the first record I ever bought. And he was very self-effacing, wow. very, very modest, very lovely. Met him several times after that. And if I can name drop a little bit, 
as I am doing, there was a get-together that Fender Guitars organized because Hank was supposed to be moving to Australia. Mm-hmm. And so we met up in a hotel near Shepherd's Bush Roundabout. Who should be there? It was Steve Howell I was working with at the time, Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, David Gilmore. Need I say more? What an extraordinary gathering. Wow. Man. I always thought of you as a Les Paul man, though. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. Well, yes, obviously that, but I also played a strap. I, I do own a strap and I've put it on yeah. a few records. I play a few other things. I don't want it to sound too much like a betrayal. Les Pauls are great. I usually yeah. play one every day, but then there's also... The, That's your association, but I think of you, I think of a Les Paul. It yeah. is. There's that. There's the Fernandes, which have a, a Les Paul shape, but have the sustaining facility that the Les Paul doesn't have. I'm fascinated by all manner of guitars, and I just bought a mandolin for the first time in my life. That I find extraordinary, the, for the yeah, first yeah, time here. in your life. I've, I've assumed you've had one for 50 years. Why would you not have a mandolin already? But, you know, I'm a late starter in many departments, you know. Can't is- think what. But let, let's, let's just go back to that thing Guy was saying earlier about you not being the guitar hero in the same sense yeah. of the other guys who are strutting around in, in yeah. you know, lame suits, etc. You know, I was quite taken as a, as a kid by the fact you sat down on stage yeah. and played. You were the only rock band who had a guitar player who sat down that I knew of. Which is playing the long game, isn't it? That's knowing that I might still be doing this when I'm 80. <laughs> there was also that, I was thinking that there was tremendous dignity uh, with uh, Andres Segovia, mm-hmm. who as an old man was playing, probably not much older than I am now, but what was coming out was extraordinarily eloquent and a living miracle as far as I was concerned. But when I joined Genesis, they said, oh, do you mind sitting down because we all sit down to play apart from Pete Gabriel who's running around doing everything wearing flower masks and being the show we were like the pit orchestra I was thinking, you know we just sat down and that's, that's the music. band of toffs isn't it would you mind terribly sitting down <laughs> would you mind terribly sitting down um, would you mind keeping your head down fine I would be anonymous but you mentioned Robert yeah. Tripp of course mm-hmm. who was the most famous guitarist to sit down ever since Les Paul, as far as I'm concerned. Well, Mike had to sit down because of the bass pedals, didn't he? Um, Yeah, I think there was an aspect of that. Yeah, he had these Vox bass pedals, first of all, before he had the Taurus ones, and the the Taurus ones were a big feature. But what he said to me as a kid was, you're sitting down because you play better that way, and your playing is much more important than the way you look. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a bit of a statement. I just want to just jump to you being in your earlier band, I hate to say this, Steve. I've just forgotten the name of it. Uh, Quiet, Quiet World, Quiet, Quiet World. World. And I had a listen to it. Oh my god! I mean, you know, I know you don't like the word progressive, but this was of that ilk. This had everything that we already knew Genesis might become, right? And right. it was in that band there. I mean, was it Moody Blues that were influencing that sort of music? It was the Heather Brothers. They were English, but they'd grown up in South Africa. And they'd come back, they'd, they'd gotten a, um, a recording contract with Pi. They were very enthusiastic. They had winning personalities. And I think they also worked with Phil Henderson, who's an amazing composer, arranger. And on that first album, they just happened to give us the LSO. Who can afford to work with the LSO these days? And so, you know, that was cutting my teeth. First time I'd been in a professional studio uh, at Pi Records, Pie, of course, as a company, made everything. They were like General Electric. They made washing machines. That's right, yeah. Uh, you name it. And um, they were a major force at that time. In fact, the Dawn label, because they wanted to get success with albums, they'd only had success with pop stuff. And I believe John McLaughlin was signed to the label at one point. But the thing that they had success with was Mungo Jerry in the summer. Oh, yeah. In the oh, summer, right. yeah. That's right. the yeah. Was that? Yeah. <laughs> it was a producer, John Schroeder, who I believe had written Cast Your Fate to the Wind. and yeah, Which is that lovely acoustic guitar theme, isn't it? Well, there you are. You see, you're remembering that. And it's got a chord or two in there that is reminiscent of what Genesis were to use. Sorry, Steve. I think I saw some footage of you with, with Francis Dunnery. Were you not doing a bit of Cast Your Fate to the Wind in that? I don't know. 
he may be, have been doing that. And yeah, I, have, I digress. Sorry. Francis, of course, is is a phenomenal guitarist, and the stuff that he did with Hit Bites was extraordinary. I was talking to a guy about Francis Dunnery earlier, and yeah. uh, someone that's very underrated. And if uh, he sent me something recently that he wanted me to hear, and there was some wonderful guitar stuff on it. Yeah, he's he an amazing towards player. Towards the end of the track, and I thought, oh, how's he doing that? That sounds some. Amazing voice as well. And of course, he was going to take over from Phil Collins when Phil left Genesis, apparently, that he was on the list. He may well well have been. I mean, you know, memory is, is hazy here. I think there were others who were sifting through tapes for us as they were in those days. I, I'm talking about later when Phil left and it was Mike and Tony on his own. Talking Just to talk- singers, though, quickly... This morning, I just watched Your Supper's Ready from the Albert Hall, which was absolutely fantastic. And that was with Nad singing. Is Nad still singing? Nad Sylvan, yeah. Nad is still singing with the band, yes. Amazing chops for that. Because you realise that that Peter gig is a tough gig to take on. And he's a fascinating character as well, isn't he? His whole history. Well, I think they were big shoes for Phil Collins to fill Mm. when he first took over from Pete. But he'd been singing like Peter for a while, hadn't he? He'd been sort of double-tracking his vocals, so... They had a similar tone to their voices. I mean, completely different writers, but whilst there was a commonality with the songs, if you weren't looking, because they obviously looked very different, their presentation was very different. You know, Pete was much more... He was gorgeous, gorgeous back then he was. Oh. <laughs> what, Pete, you mean? Or, yeah. or Phil? Well, they were both gorgeous back then in the showers. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know... Uh, they're both equally talented in different ways, you know. And, uh, mm-hmm. I know you get, you know, the idea of championing one over the other, but they're, they're big shoes to fill, you know. Mm-hmm. And Nad does that very well because he's chameleon-like in his approach. And even some material that I'd recorded with Richie Havens, he did a very, oh. a very good, convincing version of that. And one night, I swear that he was absolutely channeling Richie Haven, who I thought was absolutely wonderful. Um, wow. A singer, singer. Richie even got to work with uh, Peter Gabriel on the story of Ovo, the music that he'd done for um, the Millennium Dome. And um, oh, that's right. at the time, Pete had said to Richie Havens, because he quoted this back at me, he said, I was going to sing this myself, but I thought you might do a better job. And, <laughs> you know, the singer, singer that was the, the late, great Richie Havens, very sweet man with the most enormous voice. I think Phil took on Peter's role so perfectly because he's an actor, Phil. He, you know, he started at stage school. So impersonation was right. is something that he must be able yes. to do. But then again, you're no stranger to that yourself, are you? you know, yeah. but, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk about your Melody Maker ad. All right. Which got you into the band. What, what did you put in the Melody Maker, Steve? Well, I've been advertising for five years, getting nowhere. First of all, I, I had blues guitarist, harmonica, Seek's work. You know, that wasn't setting the world alight when I was 16. The blues boom died on me like so many other guitarists. But by 1970, the wording had changed to something like guitarist, writer, Seek's creative musicians determined to strive beyond existing stagnant musical yeah. forms. One and <laughs> Not so, on heavy trip. Word. Can you imagine? this? So I had enough money at that point, having done enough odd jobs to stick in this this tome of, of an ad. And um, I was saying, you know, there was a able accordionist who was in there every week. He, was, <laughs> he carefully worded that. And I thought, well, my ad has got to stand out. And Pete said many years later, there was something about the ad. I think, yeah, you know, it wasn't just going music yeah. Paris Clapton style seeks work, and there were plenty of those. Mm-mm-mm. In a way, I guess it appealed to their Charterhouse kind of sensibility, didn't it? It was the sort of thing you might describe yourself as as on University Challenge, you know. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> I was kind of aiming for all sorts of stuff, claiming this, that, and the other, and I'd barely written a note, but it was, a, you know, everything is is in the aspiration. So, as a friend of mine once said to me, it's the day that you decide to become a, a master chef even though you haven't cooked a single carrot that you actually become that thing so once you're on the road that's right to becoming the next michael parkinson as you will or whatever or the next james bond in fact you know that's it it's all in the in the decision making life is about spin yeah well life is about spin it's faking it to make it and um but the the decision making process or perhaps those decisions are made for you so who called you steve who looked at the ad and called you? Peter Gabriel called me. So he probably thought, who is this nutter from, from Pimlico? 
he wasn't done a single thing and he's got all these ideas for stage shows and blah, blah, blah. so I had a million ideas none of which I'd managed to share with anybody and then I suddenly realized that I was going to have to work within a team you know oh my god playing with the team you mean you've got to play in time as a as opposed to merely acoustic and electric. So there was a lot of learning that went on. And, and Phil said, I think the very first time I met him, he said, we're bound to influence each other. And I thought, what's he talking about influence? I've never worked with anyone, you know, apart from me and my brother. Yeah, we're love, yeah. a fantastically long-standing um, association. But was there a thing with you and Phil, of, of because we were talking about this thing of extending childhood and how bands do that is because they're all about a gang all about being in a gang when kind of most people are growing up and they've left their gang. And um, so yeah. you've got this, like the Charterhouse boys and and then yes. there's you and Phil who are the two outside. And, and I get the feeling from stuff you've said in interviews before that that always kind of was a thing because actually Peter himself has said there was a thing about being at Charterhouse about being bred yeah. to be leaders of men. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. I've often joked about this and I'm sorry if I say it again, but I was thinking, you know, each of Genesis were, you know, at that time bred to, and I would include Phil in this because he'd been through the grounding of theatrical school and singing in Oliver and mm. tap dancing and all the rest. He wasn't a regular working class kid, was he? Well, exactly. You would think he was, but actually it's not quite that. You know, he was down the mines at a very early age. So I think <laughs> that, you know, along with the rest of Genesis, I think that they were all capable of leading a, a charge in the Crimea without flinching. They, they were designed to be the next Viceroy of and India. sacrificing the ones beneath them. <laughs> well, that's it. I think, you know, the idea of the fagging system, and unless the Americans say, you know, fagging does not actually mean uh, sexual variation. <laughs> what it means is that you're given this young slave mm. to do your bidding and you, you practice giving all To this. warm your seat for you. <laughs> is that what that is that what you were doing sitting down steve you <laughs> that's right you were warming mike's seat for him i'm not a child house boy i didn't come from that privileged background mm-hmm. um no working class me mate that's that's it but did, um, but did you find yourself bonding with phil on that first album i mean yes you know obviously you wrote for absent minds together on that first album did you not is that yeah we, we started working together because i think we very much felt like new boys and um the others were up and running as a songwriting team already. So there was some history there. And um, so we started writing stuff together. And um, I thought, yeah, they're posh. We're not. Pete was somewhere in, in between. I've got a lot of friends through public school. But I've noticed that they tended to um, be very successful people, but not necessarily to be terribly successful in relationships because that's not what they were bred to do. If you're raised to rule, that creates another kind of success. Politics is full of this, you know, you know what this is. Everyone around you has to hang on. That's the point, isn't it? You know, as you move forward. That's it. You know, if you were at public school and it was the First World War, you, you were automatically part of the officer mm-hmm. class. Never mind that whether you had any, you know, remote shred of humanity, sanity and all the rest. I think what you had in common, though, let's face it, certainly between you and Tony Banks, is a real intelligence in music. You weren't going to go for, you know, one, four, five, you know, you were exploring chord sequences and time signatures that, you know, that's the commonality between you. That was your super intelligence. Well, you see, as I say, you know, when you fall in love with classical music for its intricacy and its, you know, all the through composed pieces and all the rest, uh, you find something like Tony who said, you know, he liked listening to Vaughan Williams and Shostakovich and loved church music for the changes and all mm-hmm. the rest. You see that link and you see it there with Gary Brooker. And, you know, that thing that perhaps the English have that the Americans don't have to be able to draw oh, on, on a tradition. Point, yeah. Even song, yeah. You don't just boogie. In fact, I remember that John Silver, who'd been one of the early drummers with Genesis, showed up one day and he showed up with a camcorder and early sort of thing. And he said, oh, yeah, let's have a jam and we'll film it and all that. And just mucking around. And so there was me and there was there was Mike. I think it might have been just the trio of us. And I was sort of blasting awake, falling back on a blues trajectory. And afterwards, Tony said, yeah, I listened outside. It sounded just like Deep Purple. And it was an accusation. You know, <laughs> it doesn't really matter. You know, if you don't have prejudice... 
it doesn't always have to be about the chords. It doesn't have to be about writing an opus. It can just be about the spirit of the thing. So I think, again, I'd had this conversation with Robert Fripp where he was saying, you know, a lot of bands have this thing about, you know, wanting to work very hard on the form. And he mentioned several bands, including ELP and what have you. So yeah, lots of form, but what about spirit? In other words, what he's talking about was what about the ability to be able to just jam? So I understand different schools, collision of thought. Why not? It's all perfectly okay. Yes, you can love chords, but at the same time, that shouldn't prevent you from listening to Indian music that's all based on the drone. Therefore. Yeah, with the drone, yeah. But I think what you were doing and what I appreciated as a young man is you were you were taking a very English quality, a very Englishness that you know was about even song and folk music and classical music. But occasionally you would hear the bending of a guitar note that's had a bit of blues in it. Or Peter yeah. would sing, you know, touch me now, and he would go into a soulful yeah. range. But that little glimpse yeah. as the doors opened and we saw other music in there, this was what made this so visual and this landscape that you guys have created that I knew I could live on. This wasn't me yeah. listening to American music that had been mm -hmm. borrowed by English boys. This was yeah. somewhere that was in my past, in my roots. Well, you know, Pete, said to me, uh, you know, singers he liked, Nina Simone, for instance. And I'd barely heard anything of Nina Simone. I just remember, you know, the song that she'd sung from here. At the same time, he said, yeah, I like music concrete. I didn't know what he was talking about, but <laughs> I found out that music concrete was the, the father of sampling, really. Yeah. Sounds in the street, whatever you use, Stockhausen, all that, and what the Beatles were, were influenced by. So yeah. he was like that. You know, I'd spent an evening, stayed over with Pete, who was living with his parents. But at the same time, he was playing me the American band Spirit. Uh, he liked the long, sustained guitar notes. So, good sound, taking that on board, the idea of sustain. But do you not think also, sorry, Steve, do you not also think the part of it is just that classical musicians, people who wrote classical music, just use classical instrumentation? The fact is that why not write classical music using these fabulous new set of instruments that have been... Maybe well, then. yeah, that, that's extremely valid. I remember, you know, working with Nick Magnus, who I'm going to mm -hmm. be working with tomorrow, you know, fabulous keyboard. He said when he first got a Prophet 5, which was one of the first yeah, yeah. polyphonic synthesizers, he said, yeah, if Bach and Beethoven had been around, they would have used this because they did. They used the technology of their day. Bach with organ, you know, which is a kind of early synthesizer because you've got stops that say, trumpet and voice yeah. but it's almost like that because actually the first synthesized records we knew were like were switched on bark and tomita that's actually the direction it was going in wasn't it well it was yeah and um musicians perhaps don't change that much if you're listening to you know stuff from 1685 and you realize that bark and handle and scarlet is all born in the same year that's a very good year for, for keyboard players <laughs> And even further, you know, William Bird, I borrowed this record when I was at school from the music master, and he said, oh, have a listen to this, The Earl of Salisbury. Yeah, yeah, I know. And I'd, I'd forgotten about that piece for years. And it was uh, John Remborn, another wonderful guitarist mm -hmm. who's passed, who did this album, Sir John, a lot of, a lot of Sir John. And um, the first piece is acoustic guitar playing that same piece with Glockenspiel on the top. So you get the sort of tinkly sound with Terry Cox on the top. And I remember it was one of the hit folk albums of the year it's still gorgeous when you listen to that his playing was was wonderful very self-effacing talked about his early years as oh it was all a bit of a hodgepodge and then I went back to school to learn how to do it properly well people don't really have to learn to do it properly I think you know it's the intention but at the same time as this was happening, there was all the sort of Cecil Sharp folk revival that was going on. And that's probably the irony with Charterhouse Boys trying to do things that were, you know, back to the soil. But, uh... Yeah. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Your relationship with Mike, I think, is something I'd, I'd like to look at because... There was a folk style that went on between in this 12-string playing. I mean, Tony yeah. played 12-string as well quite a lot. This was quite a unique sound. Where did this come from? Well, you may have met Mike yourself. But well, he's been on the show. We've had Mike on the show. I, I've known Mike for years. Uh, yeah. There we are. When I first met Mike, unlike most guitarists, he said, oh, one of his favourite guitarists was Joni Mitchell. Not for her voice, but the guitar style. He liked the way that worked and so yes largely arpeggiated work or drumming um but then mike also said but yeah but i also like the heavy stuff led zeppelin and i thought you know each of these guys in the band are wow. coming from completely opposite schools of thought uh -huh. phil was listening to mel tolme but at the same time you know he's a drummer every character it seemed as if they embodied two people you know with completely polar opposite tastes or so it seemed so Tony was a great fan of the Beatles, but at the same time, yeah, you know, there would be this more obscure classical stuff unless you're seriously interested in the music. But I think that's what made made up the strength of the band, the fact that we could become, you know, different schools of thought. We could mix it up, mix and match. Yeah, so because that dual 12-string thing, as you guys said, was just such a beautiful trademark. I mean, it is such yeah. a beautiful thing. I'm amazed it wasn't just nicked by everyone. But it's one thing, as soon as you hear it, go, oh, yeah, it's Genesis. Before I joined the band, funny enough, I, I had a 12-string, and I had to sell it in order to get my first Gibson. And I thought, oh, is it terrible? You know, I've got to sacrifice this to get this. And I remember didn't have the money to buy their album when they talked to me, um, and no one gave me a free copy. <laughs> I go down to the local record shop, and my brother and I are listening, listening booth, and we thought, oh, what is that sound? It sounds, is it guitars? Is it? keyboards is it you know it could be a, a pride of harpsichords or harpists for all we know it was string mm -hmm. instruments but you couldn't really tell what the source was and tony used to like to put his through his homemade cabinets leslie's, oh, what? leslie's. there we are leslie cabinets you know and so the lines will you know, blurred even mm -hmm. even further got a guitarist like me who wants to sound like a keyboard player with tapping you've got a keyboard player who wants to sound like a guitarist that wants to be able to bend notes which he couldn't do until synths were out so we were sort of jealous of each other's capabilities we've got we've got lots of iconic moments that we need to get on to i just wanted you to get your um memory of that first time when peter came on stage wearing the oh, fox's yeah, yeah, head yeah. and his wife's dress i believe yes. that was someone in dublin was it in dublin it was in dublin in because it upset the band boxing, boxing stadium and suddenly he came on wearing a dress on Fox's head, but I think we didn't bat an eyelid. We just carried on because you do head down. Mike was saying that Tony was a little bit, you know, they were a bit concerned that they had gone for the theatrical too far. Well, I think that he'd learned that the best way to get anything done within the band, he was always critical of the, Peter this is, of composition by committee. Again, it was over my head, didn't know what he was talking about. He's talking about a band writing together. Mm -hmm. I think that if he had run these ideas by the band, do you think I should wear this gold necklace? Should I wear a fox's head with my wife's red dress? Should I wear a box on my head? Should I wear bat wings and the cat suit and day glow makeup for Watch of the Skies? I know what the answer would have been. It would have been, no, I don't think you should wear those sequins, darling. But yeah. if that's what gets you on, on the front page, at the end of the day, you know, we owe a debt to a guy who was prepared to dress up in practically anything live, including the Slipper Man costume, which was full of inflatable boils that yeah, went yeah, off yeah. whilst he was singing. I was in the front row at Wembley. He should have paid more attention to being on mic and hitting his marks and all that. He wasn't that kind of front man. He was and embodied theatre, and it gave journalists something to write about. So it wasn't until we started using the visuals. I, I was mad keen on us getting a light show and a mellotron and a synth and all that so whilst I was trying to get my own way with that I thought that if we can sound like an orchestra that'll give us it's a kind of time machine we can use things that sound nostalgic and alien and strange and we can become an orchestra whilst Pete was thinking 
yes, well, I could personify the songs by becoming the alien figure that's being sung about in Water of the Skies. So he depict the action, live the songs, present them in a way that you mentioned Bowie earlier. I think it's a similar approach. Let's not forget it was Alice Cooper. Mm-hmm. We all stand on the shoulders of giants. But it's funny that you mentioned earlier, you said about personifying the song dressing up rather than working on, say, mic technique or anything. Because I remember yeah. when you did that reunion gig, when you did Nebworth. Yes. And I remember, I don't know if it was you, but certainly Phil and someone else was like, well, how was it to be back together again? And the first thing someone said was, well, Pete still hasn't got his mic technique together. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't have been me. <laughs> I think it was Phil. <laughs> yeah, I just remember backstage... Uh, everyone was hugging each other. There was no stiff British mm-hmm. upper lip. It was just a great bash afterwards, and we all got wrecked. It was a great moment. It was one of the proudest, if not the proudest moment in my life, to be up on stage with all those guys who we'd done so much together, and suddenly we were all together again. That was really rather wonderful, you know, mm-hmm. thinking, my God, what a team, you know. Isn't it great to have been part of that and to still be doing it and all the rest, and... You know, it's a hard act to follow, that's for sure, but I aim to get better. <laughs> that's the intention. Can we get on to talking about what I think has been the song that, that everyone refers to as your great moment, the first of fifth, on Selling England by the Pound? Yeah, what is it about that solo that you must feel the well, weight of that every time you play it in the room? It's so purple. Well, it's a challenge for musicians. I mean, there are many keyboard players, not just in rock, but world of classical, who find playing that introduction is no easy matter. Mm. The piano introduction is complex. There's a band arrangement of it later on. Tony wrote the entire song and then the melody that he'd written on on piano. I thought, well, I suggested, you know, why don't we do this as a band and I'll play the melody or what I think is the most iconic moments of the melody that will fit on the guitar and bend it and shape it and do improvised phrases in between. And it's a gorgeous melody there's something of Eric Satie in it, French Impressionist composer. I did an album. We were talking about that earlier. We've both been looking for that online and can't find it. Sorry, you can't find we that? We can't find that album. We were, yeah, we were, we were talking about it earlier. Right. Well, there are so many albums. I like to think we can get it somewhere. And uh, <laughs> I'll try and find out about that. I'll, I'll chase it up. But it's interesting, you know, the kind of stuff that was being done at that time. So the melody is slightly Eastern. It's slightly mm. exotic. And it worked very well on guitar. Some people thought it sounded a bit Indian. It certainly sounded romantic. It was a great melody for guitar. Nine times out of 10, I'd hit a high F sharp and it was sustain. So people would think that I always had great sustain. You know, sustain was no object, quite by chance. You know, it was it was a fluke. You could hold that note and that wait for it, wait for it, wait for it and go into the solo. And, you know, it's a moment when everyone in the band is doing the right thing. Phil is playing very simple drums, mm-hmm. not heroically. By the time the Mellotron comes in, it's a big rush on the repeat of theme. And um, it just works wonderfully. As a song, it's about 11 minutes long. It's just full of great writing. So I have to credit Tony with, with great writing and the others for coming up with great playing. And I still love doing it live. And I know, I know the guys in the band do. You know, we kind of feel like we hit the home straight when we hit that. So... I suppose, in a way, we need to get on to the album that I know splits the Genesis community, which is, uh, well, certainly some people with Lamb Lies Down, you know, it splits the Genesis band. I don't think Tony has ever been a Lamb Lies Down fan, Tony Banks, but I think it's a genius piece of work. Yeah, I absolutely adore that album. That's actually probably the one I go back to more than any. And it's actually the least, even though it's a huge concept album, it's kind of the least prog in a way it's the most it's like American a, it's the most like a rock and roll band you ever were in that there are bits of it where you're not a million miles away from something like Quadrophenia almost it's you know yeah well I think that there was a certain amount of competition again I think from mm-hmm. you know very busy keyboard lines very dense vocal textures so there's a lot of information coming at you at once now for those who like it they say well yes I'm hearing this variation and I'm hearing that and I'm and I find it's complementary. It's not on a collision course. I wonder if, you know, the absorption of, of musical ideas has got a lot to do with when you're listening, when you're young, when your hormones are raging 
and you always remember the music of mm-hmm. adolescence, perhaps, and that extended mm-hmm. childhood that we were talking about. And when music hits you at a certain time, as indeed, you know, the Beatles did for me, it, it kind of starts with the shadows. It, it's then it's the Beatles, then it's the Stones, it's all the blues guitarists, and then I there's the the huge game changer mm-hmm. that is King Crimson, where you're getting uh, this broad-based approach. There's jazz, there's epic stuff, there's classical influence, there's a hint of moody blues, there's there's the pastoral stuff, but it's all very, very driven by precision. And, the, you know, the aim was very different from the idea of being another Cream or another Jimi Hendrix experience. It's not solos into the night ad infinitum. It's the world mm-hmm. of thought. Yeah. So it seemed to me like Crimson were the logical successors to the Beatles. We knew that they were head and shoulders above everyone else. Luckily for the rest of us, they broke up after that first album. I hate to say that because had the competition continued, my God, you know, it was up to uh, Robert to carry on. It was Ian who'd been my friend. I'd Ah. met Ian McDonald. Ian said he was posted to Gibraltar. He remembered what a lifeline it was listening to the Beatles. So Ian, to some extent, always wanted to be the Beatles. But somewhere along the line, he bumped into people who wanted to be Coltrane and Ornette Coleman. And I think it's important that you get a band of guys who are we're dead serious on, on wanting to make it, you know. And you get these disparate influences. And they were doing it so well when they were jazz. They were doing it very well when they were epic. It was great when it was pastoral, when it was I Talk to the Wind. It was wonderful. And my brother... He came to see them at the marquee same time I did in 69, just before they'd done in the court, The Crimson King. And we both bought a flute. John was so taken with what Ian was doing. He immediately became very serious about learning to play flute. And was it just a coincidence that Peter played the flute? Or was that an inspiration from you? A mere coincidence, as far as I'm concerned. I don't know whether Pete took up flute as a result of, of Ian McDonald. I'm not sure. But of course, Ian, having left Crimson, went on. To form foreigner. A complete so, left know, turn. A complete left turn. And foreigner, it was perfect mm. for the American market. But ever since then, I was always trying to twist Ian's arm. So you, well, you invented what we now call prog rock. Don't you understand how great that band was? And he gets me little sort of insights of information. And I hang on to every word. Oh, so that yeah, was yeah. how the Bible was written, you know. Crimson announced this amazing venerable institution, aren't they? Having, you know. I mean, it's fantastic. We saw them on tour a couple of years ago. It is absolutely amazing. Because they then actually kind of invented 80s art rock with that Bruford Levin Baloog incarnation. Well, I think, you know, there was a single-mindedness and um, it depends where you get on board. I mean, I personally feel that the huge area of romantic writing that was part of Mm -hmm. In the Court of the Crimson King, I mean, the two big epics, The Court and Epitaph, are just so wonderfully recorded and fabulously produced. But I've done that live with with Ian. Steve, I'm I'm keen to get back on to this period of Lamb. And there's a track on Lamb called The Waiting Room, which is very, very atonal. And in fact, to be actually honest, Guy, it reminds me a little bit of Sourceful of Secrets, the yeah, track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it starts off with this atonal jam, really, of creating an atmosphere. Yeah. And then ends up going into something much more musical. And of course, that juxtaposition between the atonal uh, chaos and then going into something rather if, yes. uh, beautiful, it highlights the second half. Yeah. And, and it, this goes back to, an, uh, to your first audition with Peter, doesn't it? Um. Well, yes, it's funny enough, because when I first met Pete and Tony, I tried to play them three different kinds of music, something I'd written for flute that my brother played, which was pastoral, and ended up on a track with the Hermit on my first solo thing. Uh, and I did a bit of blues, because I was playing blues harmonica, John was playing guitar, and then I did this atonal thing where I'm just playing a mass of conflicting things. And so, yeah, I drove that one. I wanted the band to do something hugely experimental. I don't know if the band on record allowed themselves to go quite as much as, there are some live versions of that on on lots of demos that I hope will be released one day, where you can see everyone really letting themselves go and it sounds great. But I think if you do atonal stuff or evil stuff, you've got to think of live evil, you've got to think of um, Mm. you've got to think of Miles Davis you've got to throw yourself into it completely, it's no good being reticent. So for me, that version on Lamb is a little reticent. You know, it's a little 
too much smashed bottles and not enough perhaps atonal runs. But you can't have everything. It's an interesting album, lots of different kinds of music on it. I, yeah, I, I'd love it. I absolutely love it. I just wanted to get into this because I feel like we've missed some moments that are very important, I think, where Peter okay. leaves and how Phil takes over. And I and there's how did it feel for you guys at that time when Peter left? Did you feel that this was the end? Did you, or were you um because there was a sense of you were moving into the more commercial with Trick of the Tail. And did that how did that feel for you, Steve? Um I don't think that Lamb Lies Down was commercial. Um, we'd had one hit single mm. I know what I like, which was on selling in by the pound. So nineteen seventy three versus 1974's effort, you could say that it had become more esoteric, far more experimental. I was to do two more albums with the band. By the time Phil took over, we were doing Trick of the Tail and then Wind and Mothering, neither of which had songs that became hit singles. The Squonk was one of the absolute first guitarists I ever learned. It was fantastically simple. It seems ironic. Is it really? <laughs> it was the okay. simplest guitar riff ever. <laughs> well, you know, Mike was very good at writing things that essentially mm -hmm. came out of rhythm guitar. And um, I think there was that connection with Zeppelin, right. you know, where, whereas I tended to do something that was perhaps more something like, you oh, know, Blood on the Rooftops. Fantastic oh, let's just stop there because Blood on the Rooftops. Blood on the Rooftops, fantastic. Blood on the Rooftops yeah. is, is a masterpiece. Well, you know, when you're doing this stuff, you don't really know. All music is a shot in the dark. You don't really know whether it's going to hugely turn on everybody or not. And so when we did that, I thought this is a very personal song. And I was extremely surprised when people said they liked it. But, you know, that's the beauty of music, isn't it? You know, by sticking by your guns or the things that you believe in. It's another kind of commercially acceptable proposition. It might not end up on top of the pops but then nothing comes up on top of the pops these days, does it? Let's explain this song a little bit to people who have not heard it. You know, it has this very classical kind of guitar part that it begins with that, you know, has a lot of classical music feel in it. But at the same time, once it start, you start, Phil joins in and begins, has elements of musical theatre. There's elements of Sondheim. Yeah. There's elements of, uh, of sort of Jimmy Webb or, you know, great songwriting. Yes, Jimmy Webb. It was Jimmy Webb's use of chords that thrilled me. I thought he was, you know, the best songwriter, basically, since since the Beatles. Mm -hmm. Which to Lineman is, has that absolutely indefinable thing, doesn't it? Which to Lineman, yeah. absolutely love it. Richard Harris MacArthur singing Park, MacArthur yeah. Park. I mean, the changes are enormously good. When we were interviewed by Melody Maker, four out of five Genesis guys, including myself, all said we thought that was our favourite single. And we hadn't conferred on that, so yeah. I didn't know. And it was the template for much of, of what Genesis did. In other words, yes, verse, chorus, middle eight or extended section, and the solo, the workout section, that might have been a little bit underdeveloped and was a bit vagus. But essentially, you know, the sweep of the song and the fact that it was an actor singing, yeah. acting mm -hmm. words, was brilliant. I mean, it's harmonically fantastic, really. And you think of it as an English song. It sounds like an English writer would have come up with that, or an Irish bard. But it's not. You know, it's an American writer who'd grown up pretty much like Tony, you know, playing organ in church. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Phil's an actor as well, you know, and I think there is that yes, sense. Indeed. But there is a sort of a, a bookending of your time with Phil that began with For Absent Minds and that song you, you came together on at that first album, Nursery Crime, and then yeah. finally on this last album, yeah. you write Blood on the Rooftops with him. And then it's goodbye. It's been fantastic to talk to you, Steve. But it's been brilliant talking. That's all right. No, it's great. It's, I hope to hook up with you guys in a, in a live setting. Well, you're playing at Hammersmith Odeon, aren't you? So we should come along. Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah, we will be doing Hammersmith. I can't remember the date off the top of my head, but it'll be sometime in September. I can probably look up the date that's over here somewhere, but uh, it's coming up. Steve, it's been a big pleasure. It's been, yeah, a thrill, real thrill. Yeah, it's been brilliant talking to you. All right, brilliant. Thank you so Cheers. much, guys. All right, all, all right, the best. All the best. Yeah. 
I mean, that was an utter delight, wasn't it? But uh, he had to shoot off at that moment. As he left Genesis, I think he was talking about, he actually left Rock on Tours. Uh, well, we're nothing if not timing. method. We're totally method on this show, you know. <laughs> uh, we still had an hour and a half of him, so. As you know from his myriad of solo records, all in different styles, you know, Steve isn't short of an idea. And there's so many different angles to him. Yeah. And I think we got a lot of that flavour of that today. Personally, just his talk and his mannerisms, yeah. he reminded me of Rick Wright. Did he? Yeah. That's uh, your late father-in-law. Mm. That's very nice of you mm. to think that, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to mention Francis Dunnery one more time, uh, because there is a version of him singing uh, back in New York City, which you should go to guy on the internet anyone listening to this should go to as well and of course come to us next week because we're going to be here at the same time and it goes up on a Sunday and then it stays there and you can listen to it forever and ever Uh, your rock heroes not us of course the rock heroes that we play on (laughs) and other types of hero well it's good night from me and it's good night from they